the process we're engaged in here is very much concerned with exploring what it means to be alive, what it means to be what we are, and what's useful, what's helpful in response to the conditions we find our life in. <clears throat> and one of the fundamental conditions of our life, and we could say our aliveness, is sensitivity. As human beings, we are remarkably sensitive. And we also have a capacity to respond to that sensitivity. This dimension of our experience that we are affected and that we respond to that is something primary, something central in what it is to be what we are. And the sensitivity is both a blessing for us and indeed a challenge at times. To be alive means to be affected, to be impinged upon at times, to be touched at times. And what we've been reflecting on or having opportunity to notice in our experience is the way, among other things, is the way that we are concerned with the endeavor to uh, get comfortable. We've reflected on this a little. We've probably noticed it and would have hopefully have noticed even if it hadn't been reflected on. It's kind of hard to miss the amount of energy we put in to getting comfortable. But we sometimes need to just stop and check if we're getting there. Has it worked yet, this getting comfortable thing? Because it seems like it's kind of difficult, isn't it? Getting comfortable, or having got comfortable, staying comfortable. It's actually, it seems, one might conclude pretty close to impossible. And that would probably not be an unwarranted conclusion. Whether or not it's actually possible, there's no doubt it's hard work. It's really hard work trying to get and stay comfortable. And this is kind of maybe something obvious to us. Or maybe not. But it's useful, it's important to reflect on in this context and the fact that so much of our energy, our life, our engagement, if we're not conscious, if we're not awake, if we're not aware to what's happening, so much of our life is engaged in this process of trying to get or stay comfortable. If we look just a little bit at the conditions we're in, in which we're in, that endeavor is taking place, this body we have is a remarkably sensitive organism, remarkable capacity for feeling. And the interesting thing is that the range of experience in which we feel comfortable is a really small part of the total range. I'll just give you a simple illustration that I find quite helpful in this. Temperature, as far as scientists have determined, it can range from about minus 273 centigrade. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm afraid I can't translate this, but I'm guessing it's cold. <laughs> to something in the region of tens of thousands of degrees at the center of a, um, the thermonuclear reactions taking place in a sun, a star. Human beings existing in a world where temperatures can range from several hundred minus to several hundreds of thousand plus, we're comfortable between about 17 and 26, would you say? That's centigrade. Can someone translate those numbers? I should have looked that up. I forgot. 17, that's maybe, I don't know, 45, 50. And uh, 26 is going to be hmm, 65, 70, is it? Something in the ballpark. 80. Okay, 26 is 80. Okay. Sorry? If you can do that for me, that would be great. <laughs> but anyway, we've got, we, you've got a sense of what that is. Um,
I really should have translated all the numbers. But anyway, <laughs> plus five and double it as I go along. So, so that's the range in which we're comfortable. And if it gets much colder than that, we kind of need to get a lot of gear. Or we want to get away from it. If it gets much hotter than that, it's kind of unpleasant. And, you know, if you're like me, your brain kind of goes foggy at a certain temperature. It doesn't really work when it gets too hot. And that's a pretty narrow range given the possibilities of temperature. And then within that, of course, within the core of our body, now again, centigrade, about 37 degrees. I think, is that about 102? Well, no, that's, that's a high temperature, isn't it? What's, what's healthy temperature for a human being in Fahrenheit? 98, okay. See, even a little mistake is serious in this territory, isn't it? But that's the point, really, isn't it? Basically, you start at 96? 98, okay. 98. <laughs> Two or three degrees either side of that centre point. A little up or a little down, we don't feel very good at all. Two or three more degrees either way, we're actually dead at the core of the human being. It's got that limited of flexible capacity to survive. So immediately you say, oh, we've got about two or three degrees either side of center point, and the numbers go for hundreds and thousands in each direction. Whoa, getting comfortable is gonna be tricky. We're really lucky we turned up on a planet that's got the temperature pretty close to what we need some of the time, or most of the time at least. But that sense of, oh, the range of potential for discomfort in relationship to the territory in which we are actually comfortable, gives you perhaps some kind of more objective perception maybe of maybe trying to get the temperature right all the time is not going to be easy. And that's just one dimension in which we are concerned with staying comfortable. And of course we invest a vast amount of time and energy in staying comfortable, not just to be comfortable, but because of course it's something relevant to our health. But just, just reflecting on that, I find that useful just to see, oh yeah, it's not surprising then, A, that it's of concern to me, and B, that it's not easy. And of course, as human beings, we're very sensitive, not just sensitive bodies, but we have sensitive hearts and minds. We're very vulnerable to the impressions, the thoughts, the perceptions, the conclusions that others might make or express towards us the amount of time that is consumed on retreats considering what shall I say and how will it be received in the small group meeting. <laughs> you know, it's of importance to us and it's not to be sort of dismissive of that. It's understandable that we might be concerned. We are really sensitive. Sometimes, when, you know, one could imagine what would it be like if we came to the board and we noticed there was our name. We thought, oh, Maybe it's something nice. And then we get it out and it says, you know, come to my office. <laughs> Boom, the teacher, the head teacher. Even. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. We could imagine some concern or distress arising for us. That sensitivity that we have is something we need to really respect, to understand. Because without understanding, we're driven by it, dominated by it. There's a, a lovely story that concerns a, a samurai warrior of Japan who was in the Middle Ages walking along a, a road outside of the town. And he was contemplating deeply profound questions of his spiritual journey and practice. And he came across a small Zen nun sitting cross-legged by the road. And he looked down at this elderly being who seemed very serene, very calm. And he said, huh, nun, you are a spiritual person. Can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? And the nun, she just looked up from her cross-legged posture. She contemplated this chap for a little while. She said, Samurai, I see your robes are dirty. Samurai 
it seems to me that your sword is rusty. And samurai, you smell bad. You are a disgrace to your noble order. Why should I speak to you? And the proud warrior, this little pipsqueak's not going to insult me, whips out his sword, and he's just about to take her head off with a single stroke. And she points at him and says, that's hell. <laughs> and in that moment, he realizes, oh my gosh, to be so in the grip of rage and anger that I would kill this, this being just for a few words that they said that I took insult from. Suddenly, he realized, oh my gosh, this, this, this little being, this nun, this woman, she has risked her life to give me a really important lesson. And suddenly, he's filled with gratitude and love and just so happy, beaming down at this, this person. She smiles at him and says, that's heaven. <laughs> and it's a lovely story in terms of what's pointing to the truth of heaven and hell that we can know in our life. But it equally, a few words, and we can be thrown into hell. A few more words, and we might find ourselves in heaven. So quickly can the, the meter, the barometer, swing in our experience, in that realm that Akinshino was speaking of this morning, between pleasant and unpleasant, between heaven and hell. We can bounce, it seems like a ball in a pinball machine, if such things still exist in today's age. You know, boom, 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 boom. And sometimes it's like that for us. And we're trying to get into this place where it stays comfortable. Oh, it's hard work. So we can look a little bit at what's going on in this process of how we react so strongly to sensitivity. In this environment, we become much more sensitive than we realize. We start to feel and be aware of the impact of what's happening around us. And in a way, impact is a neutral word, but it sounds a little bit like it might be impactful. It's like being touched, being affected, being unable to be apart from what is around us. This is the truth of our experience because it keeps on touching us, it keeps on affecting us, keeps on moving us. And because when we're not conscious, when we're not awake in the experience, our tendency is, and again, as was named this morning, the tendency is to want certain experiences and to not want others, to desire, to wish for the pleasant, to seek to avoid or escape the unpleasant. But we're not just in the realm of the simple experience that's happening. We're actually dealing with our whole history in relationship to phenomena. When we're not conscious, when we're not awake, we're actually in the movement or in the, the group, in a sense, we could say, of our history. And the way it plays is that the experience of pleasant and unpleasant, in fact, when we're really, really young, is so intense when we're a baby. It's so intense. If, you, if you've seen a baby full of delight, it's almost too much for it. In fact, it is sometimes. And if it's in distress, it's really too much. And without support and help from something or someone else, it's overwhelming. And that experience of being overwhelmed when we're really young, it's like in a way, we could say dying. It's like being annihilated. To have our psychic system overwhelmed by the intensity of the physiological and the emotional response, it's like the mind gets wiped in a certain way. It's like frying the circuit boards on an electrical thing. And so our association from early on, because this happens no matter how good the parenting we got was and if we were fortunate to have reasonably attuned parenting, we're still nonetheless going to have some of this experience. It's inevitable for us. 
And what, what happens with that is that we associate then the exposure to any kind of impact that's intense or difficult, and particularly if it's difficult and intense, we associate that with something that feels like it could annihilate us. Like, I could be destroyed by this. And we react accordingly. Like, there is no way I'm going anywhere near that experience. Because my association and our inevitable history is of being overwhelmed by it. And we don't want to go there. It becomes a survival issue for us in the way our system is responding. We might not have a thought that says, oh, this uncomfortable sensation could be the death of me. But sometimes we get there, don't we? You know, it starts off with, oh, oh my gosh, um, you know, pain. Oh, and then what if it continues? And before long, the mind has jumped to the, uh, the ambulance arriving at IMS and taking us to the hospital. And it, maybe it's amputation if we get there in time, but maybe it's worse. And it's almost like the degree of fear that's arisen in relationship to the experience has failed, we've failed to recognize that we're not responding to what's here, but to our historical relationship to discomfort, to pain, and the potential for overwhelm that it presents us. And we see how strong is the force, is the movement, how powerful is the energy that arises in us in the realms of fear and anxiety, the attempt to avoid the painful, as if it's about my survival, as if it's avoiding annihilation. How much? This is the question we need to ask ourselves, perhaps. We maybe have asked before. Maybe we could ask again. How much of my life is an engaged, how much of my effort, how much of my action is an attempt to avoid what I fear? Is an attempt to avoid what is uncomfortable for me? How much of my life goes into that? How much time? How many items of clothing? How many items of padding? I bring lots of them with me to IMS so I can be comfortable when I sit here. Clothes and padding. Most of us do. When we go outside, it's really easy to go outside and it's cold. We think, oh, I don't want to go out there. I'll come back inside. Does that ever happen to you? We don't even go outside. We just look outside. It's cold. I'm not going out there. It's cold. It's cold. It is cold. It's true. But actually, it's like there's some feeling going on inside me that if I go out there and get cold, it's going to be unpleasant. Well, I know that. But it's not just going to be unpleasant. I'm going to get hypothermia. I could die out there, which is true. If you know you went out and you didn't have many clothes on and you stayed a long time where you fell in Gaston Pond, it's not impossible. <laughs> but it's probably not what's going to happen. And yet we kind of act in that way so easily you know, in the meditation. Sometimes things are getting quieter. And there's this part of us that's actually really interested in things getting quieter. We've been hoping this would happen for a while, actually. You know, read about it in books, heard about it from someone sometime. You know, teachers talk about it on occasion. The mind can actually get quieter, yeah. But as it gets quieter, we realize that in its quietness, there's something scary about it. It's like, we're not quite going to know who I am when my mind gets quiet, because it's my mind that's telling me who I am, I think. It thinks. And... Actually, I was starting to get quiet, and I thought I wanted to let go of thinking, but actually, I'm not so sure about that now. And it's like, again, we come close to a territory, something of fear that seems threatening to us emerges, and the tendency is, if we're not there, if we're not conscious in that, we move away, we back off. We withdraw. I've never yet seen it happen that someone's thinking paused and they disappeared. It doesn't happen. You know, bodies tend to mostly stay there. Sometimes people get up and leave. That's something else. But something in us, coming to a place of something unknown, unfamiliar, the first time our mind gets quiet, it's not that often that we go, great. Maybe for the first second or two. Very quickly, it's like, oh, we see why we're holding on to the thinking mind. We see it's not easy to let that go because there's a kind of 
reassurance. There's a kind of security. There's a kind of familiarity. And our tendency is to seek comfort within the familiar, the comfortable, the, the known territories. And that makes it harder for us to actually extend beyond the relatively limited confines that our life might be being lived within. Mark Twain once observed, he said, you know, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. (laughs) All those things we're so anxious and worried about. And the interesting thing is that the anxious worrying about them is actually the worst experience. It's not the thing that might or might not happen. Because when it happens, we can deal with it. Even if it's tragic, even if it's completely horrific, we can engage with it if it's actually happened. When it hasn't happened, we can't. And there's all this energy rising up to try and engage with something that hasn't happened. And that experience is actually really painful, really uncomfortable, really hard for us to bear. So what it's really important to see with the movement of fear, that response to the unpleasant or to the painful or to the anticipation of either it's arising or it's continuing or it's getting worse. First of all, to understand something of this mechanism as we've talked about, saying, oh yeah, it's something unpleasant. The tendency to push away or to withdraw from it is what arises very quickly. That we, we can notice that we go in our mind to the imagined outcome or consequence, the image or the story of where this is going to lead and what it's going to be like starts to grab or gather focus and it takes our attention. And of course, this is a useful development. This is a useful functional thing because we don't want to be contemplating, "Mm, if it's really dangerous, something really dangerous, we need to respond instantly. I think I observed in one of the groups, you know, we're wired up not to sit there wondering if that tiger is hungry or, you know, if it likes this particular kind of human being. If there's a tiger, it can eat me, I'm out of here. And that's what we do. So there's this very quick response that comes. But of course, much of what we encounter is not actually dangerous to us but it evokes the thought, the association of something that could or might be. And so we move into the image and the story and the associations that come from our past experience or the experience of others that we've heard about. And we leave where we are into this anticipated future, which we can't actually deal with. The interesting thing, because it hasn't happened, we can't deal with it. But what's also going on is that our body is responding. Our body is energized and activated to be able to respond if there is danger, if there is a need. And if we can bring the attention into the body and feel what's happening, it's like, for me, it's kind of almost like, not a mantra, but like a a reflection to bring in that time. Okay, fear is telling me a story about the future but it's an experience happening in the present. It's happening right here. And if the danger that I'm thinking about or imagining isn't right here, I need to bring my attention to what is right here. And what's that? That's the energy, that's the experience, that's the response in the body. Getting ready to take appropriate action if needed. And that energy is actually designed to make us respond to it. So it's not pleasant. It's, it's not accidental that it's not comfortable to experience because it's, it's driving us to engage, to do something. We don't want to think, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of... It wouldn't, wouldn't really help if it was a kind of neutral experience or an in-between experience. Fear arises with intensity. It has a function in that. But we can meet it, understanding that, having checked out if there's actually anything dangerous, oh, can I just open to this? Can I open to this? Sometimes we have patternings around it that, you know, we can't change as such. That's just how we've got wired up. When I was a a teenager, um, growing up in the sort of the 
which probably counts as the deep south of New Zealand. Um, with some friends, we would sometimes out on the farm get a few of the vehicles, the farm bikes and the local and the, 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 the farm truck and sort of do some really foolish things like, um, you know, seeing if we could, like playing chicken, I think is the thing, you know. And so one time, um, two of my friends were on motorbikes and they were driving at us, you know, just riding the bikes as fast as they could towards the rest of us who were trying to get out of their way. But at the same time, we were looking at them and trying to be cool. And then, you know, who's going to flinch? And on one occasion... I stepped to the side at the same point as the guy, good friend of mine, swerved to miss me in the same direction. And bang. And any time I hear a motorbike, since then, my whole system goes into terror. It's like, I'm about to get hit. I didn't get hurt too badly. I actually did quite a bit of damage to the motorbike. I was quite pleased about that. <laughs> but it hurt. And it left an impression in my body and in my mind. And when I see that happen, I just take a moment, I need to pause, because my system is saying run, but actually I need to check, am I on a road? Is there a motorbike? Because I could be in a house and I hear a motorbike and my whole system goes, <laughs> like that. We have many things like that. This is perhaps a more easy to describe, a more obvious one. If we don't see what's going on in these processes, if we simply allow that mechanism to enact what it would do, it actually contracts us, it tightens us, it constricts us, and we can notice that that's the effect. There's a sense of a, a squeezing, a shutting down that happens to our, to our heart, our mind, our body in that context. And so we invite and we encourage you to bring your attention into the body, to let go of the story, let go of the image, Notice, okay, this is what's here. Come into the body. Come into the body. Give it space. Allow this condition to be felt with a spacious attention, to soften and widen. Noticing that hardening and tightening are the basic sort of reactive responses. We harden and tighten. So softening, widening, breathing. Sometimes we can bring in just a conscious sense of kindliness and friendliness of metta a sense of helping our, our heart find some ease in the midst of the sense or the perception of threat or danger. And it's really a practice that we need to cultivate because otherwise the tendency we have is to withdraw from the experience, to pull away. If we can't get away physically, we contract energetically, psychically, physically. The body, heart, mind, tighten emotionally we attempt to not be impacted to not be affected to not feel but of course we can't because we have this remarkably sensitive system and so what happens is we pull away from the world trying to avoid what we find uncomfortable or scary and scary is simply something we find uncomfortable in the mind the body feels things that are physically unpleasant and the mind what scares us is fear is essentially unpleasant in the mind. It's almost quintessentially the unpleasant experience in the mind. There are others, but that's certainly one to get to know. What happens is the world gets smaller. We pull away and the world gets smaller. And we keep pulling away because we've actually pulled away with the whole mechanism of that fear and reactivity inside. It's not really about what's out there. And we keep pulling away and the world keeps getting smaller and we start withdrawing from our senses, withdrawing from our sensitivity. Again, picking up what was Akinchino was speaking about this morning, how actually coming to re-inhabit our sensitivity is part of the process of our waking up here. We withdraw from it. And we find literally the world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Suddenly we can't go outside because it's cold out there. It's not dangerous, but it's cold. And yet I just don't quite go there unless I notice. <laughs> I've done walking meditation on an autumn, a fall day in the sun when it's not that warm, but the sun is warm. And I notice really easily walking until the, where the shadow has come. And then as the shadow slowly moves, the walking path gets shorter and shorter and shorter. 
And if I'm not aware of it and don't consciously choose to keep walking into the shady bit where suddenly it gets cool, I'll very easily not. And there's many other ways where our world becomes filled with no-go territory. Not just our external world, but our internal world. So, contemplating this, reflecting on this, we can see that we can't avoid being affected, being impacted, being touched. It's not possible for us to, be, to separate ourselves from the world around us, to separate our experience, our sensitivity, or to even control it. But we can't somehow withdraw from what's around us. Because as we do, we simply find ourselves in contact within that smaller version of the world and the same dynamics playing out. So really, from a spiritual practice point of view, the, the option we have is not, or that we're invited to engage with, is the possibility of opening to this, turning towards it. What would it be for us to be willing to feel that which is not easy for us to feel? Well, if the first what we start to encounter, and some of you have spoken about this in the groups, is a sense of a kind of a, a defensive armoring sense of a rigidity. That tightening and contracting creates a sense of it's almost like we're trying to create an exoskeleton, like an external protective shielding around us. And sometimes that's what we encounter, what we notice. It's like it's really tight. It's like it's really hard. And it has a protective quality to it, but of course we're trapped inside it. And much as we might appreciate some degree of protection, we actually miss and we deeply miss the contact, the sensitivity. Not just the, the, the pleasantness of that ability to feel, but the very nourishment we receive from contact with life, from feeling our connectedness to it. And what we often do with this, in this place of being kind of withdrawn, contracted, and hardened or tightened, is we also start to come to imagine that somehow it's my fault, that I've done something wrong. That it shouldn't be like this. It's so important to see these are mechanisms and processes that just play out unconsciously until we begin to attend to them. And that this is not our personal experience. What tends to happen is we tend to look at it and we, we kind of have a, fantasy, a shared sort of fantasy story that life could be completely without all of this. It really could if I'd just done it right. Did anyone have that idea? If I'd just done it right and if a few other people had done it right as well, perhaps. <laughs> some of that too. But if, if we'd all just done it right, then everything would be just always okay, good and comfortable and you know, lovely, yummy, whatever I wished for. But because we tend to feel like pretty much everyone else is doing okay at it, and they seem to be fine, is very easily a sense of isolation that comes. Partly because we don't talk about it. Because if we talked about it, we'd dispel the myth that we kind of hold, hold to as this fantasy of how it could be as an always lovely, comfortable, enjoyable, and fine, when it's not. So we don't talk about it that much, where we don't even sit down and say, hey, you know, well, how is it for you to be alive as a human being? Well, actually, of course, sometimes it is lovely, but most of us, if we were honest, would have to say, and sometimes it's really hard, and painful, and scary, and confusing. And all of that goes on. When we share with each other and speak in the small groups and the meetings we have, one of the very clear things that happens is we have a sense that we can recognize, and it's reported again and again and again, we recognize elements of our experience and what other people speak about. We recognize the shared nature of this condition that we're in, that it's not just me or mine, it's this, and it's like this. 
for all of us in different ways. But the basic dynamics are not that different. What it is we find difficult, what it is that's challenging for us may vary considerably. But the fact that there is that which is difficult, that which is challenging, or one of my, one of my teachers uh, says, that which is hard to bear. I think it's a beautiful expression for what we talk about. We can say suffering or dukkha is the word the Buddha used. But that which is hard to bear. So, oh, this is something we share the experience of. And in sharing it, rather than being something that isolates it or isolates us or disconnects us, it's actually part of what brings us together. And anyone who's been in a situation where there was a, an open and honest sharing together of difficult things will have known and experienced a sense of deepening connection that comes through that. It's natural. It's natural. The Buddha spoke of this again and again and again. It's like the fundamental teaching. We can't avoid that which is hard to bear in life. The ideal or the idea, or the hope, or the fantasy that somehow we can. We need to attend to this pernicious and unhelpful view, or belief, or idea. Now the Buddha spoke about this in terms of the body, subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. That's the classical translation. Although, what classical? That's the first translation I came across. And I remember always thinking, Sickness, that happened, you know, the Buddha's usually pretty precise in how he says things and does things, and birth, aging, sickness, but that's not an order. I've been sick. I was sick as a kid. I never got sick. I got sick before I ever aged, you know? And then I read another translation which said, birth, aging, decay, death. I thought, hmm, yeah, that's right. That's how that word should be taken. That process whereby the things that used to work no longer work, and they're not going to get better, Sickness, in common usage, you get sick, you get well. Decay, a couple of my teeth, they're gone, they're not coming back. <laughs> a few other things, certainly a large number of brain cells, it seems. <laughs> they're gone, it doesn't seem like they're coming back. That's not easy for us. It's not easy for us. Birth, ageing, decay, death. This body is subject to this. Being sensitive heartful human beings who feel and care. We're also subject, and the Buddha said, spoke of this, to sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. It's like, oh, you know, they didn't put that on the meditation brochure. <laughs> sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. Mm. You know, you wouldn't imagine it would attract a lot of people to come on retreats. You too can experience this. <laughs> but of course, it's not happening because we're here. But perhaps we're seeing it or encountering it more clearly because we're here. And likewise, in what we could call more the, the sort of the psychic, the mind level, the Buddha spoke of to be associated with that which we don't like. To be separated from that which we love. And to not get what we want. Mm. That's annoying. That's difficult. That's painful. That's hard to bear. And you know, despite hearing this, and I don't, I imagine most of you have heard these teachings before or certainly something like that. Something in us doesn't quite want to let that in. I find there's a way I reflect on this that I find helpful. It can't be other than this. And just on one of those levels, in terms of how it is for our, our very sensitive hearts, Heart, mind, we could say, jitta. If in this life you love something or someone, at some point you're going to be separated from them or from that through a choice, a decision, an accident, or death. If you love something or someone and are separated from it, that will be painful, that will be grievous, that will be hard to bear. And if you don't love something or someone in this life, that will be painful. That will be grievous. That itself will be hard to bear. I don't see a third option. I'm really open to hearing from someone who's found it. But I don't see a third option in that. 
And so we have to somehow sit with this truth, this reality. It's not the totality of what's here for us, but it's something that we tend to not quite fully take on. To accept that there is that which is hard to bear and that it's not because you or I or someone else has done it wrong. It's because this is how life is. We perhaps begin to accept, to forgive ourselves, to forgive others, to forgive life, in fact. For the fact that this is part of how it is. It's not all of how it is, but it's a pretty important aspect. We need to see it clearly. We need to bring some kindness into this territory. So easily our response is to reject, to judge, to be harsh, to be critical. In response to the places in our own experience where pain, where difficulty, where fear, where suffering, where that which is hard to bear arises. I'd like to read a story that I heard first when I was practicing in Asia about 25 years ago, and a a wandering bhikkhu, a monk, um, who subsequently became a teacher for me, who I I still very much appreciate and love. His name is Ajahn Suchito. He came to visit the monastery where I was practicing. Um, In fact, he just turned up in the middle of the Dharma Hall in the middle of the night, and uh, my first encounter was with this person who was snoring in the hall when I wanted to come and meditate. So my first response wasn't so positive, but um, I have immense appreciation for him. He gave a talk while he was there. And I'd like to read you this story from the talk that he related. I'll read it in the first person. He's he's a, uh, yes, some of you may know him. Anyway, I transcribed it from the talk years later because it felt it was so useful. And he said it was okay to share. He said, many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit, pain, I would think, be with the pain. That will do it. Here am I, being with the pain. Being with the pain, It's not working, you know. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Oh, that's got it. Then, oh no, it's back. Maybe the cushion, one cushion, two cushions, three cushions, four cushions. Angle them left, right. It's not working. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist. For five years, I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts. And I don't like it. A very obvious truth. Yet I hadn't actually come to that, accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on, I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, you should like pain. Pain is good for you. Pain is bad. Make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into, I do not like. So one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it. The showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours not moving and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, middle way, moderation and all of that. (laughs) Hours go by. Two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits. It would be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it. And came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally, the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess, eventually. Ignorance does get tired. And after a while, and has to take a break from being ignorant, and instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away. Or let's open to it and that will make me go to some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. And then I began to see this sensation throbbing away. It began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of this choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on. Resistance. And then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. And this kind of moaning mind. And as I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, 
it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way and that way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved, that had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf, looking at me, saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? And I felt this deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness and harshness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it, to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog. I always think of Scooby-Doo. This creature turned into a cartoon dog, and we were dancing, me in this pain, me and the dog, me and the pain. And then the whole thing just exploded very gently, and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. The business is finished. Of course, when we hear a story like that, sometimes we might think, hmm, so that's how you do it. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. As Ramdas observed, he said, you can't be with an experience. You can't be with an experience in order for it to go away. Because it knows. And it does know. Of course, it's us. It's part of the same system. And if we're being with it in order to make it go away, it's just a subtle form of aversion. So what we're actually called to do is to bring a kindness to these places. A kind attention. As we start to feel into the places that we were not willing or able to go to, without judging our prior limitations, without blaming ourselves for this at all, because we don't know until we are shown another way. We only have the reactive patterns that are both biologically instinctual and socially reinforced. As we start to bring some kindness into these places, it's like bringing moisture to hardened, compacted soil. It begins to soften. It begins to open. The, the sense of the, the hardness and the, the numbness or the deadness or the sort of the, the sort of the, just the impactedness begins to open and become a little more fluid. And initially, we're not comfortable with that. Initially, it's like, I'm not sure about this. I don't want to be trapped inside a sort of a defensive numbness, but I'm not quite sure if I really want to feel what could be felt here. Naturally, we're going to be a little hesitant. We're going to be a little cautious. And yet, this is a place where we need some courage, where we need some willingness to just stay with the process, to allow ourselves to feel, to allow ourselves to be touched to allow ourselves to sense into the experience. To see that this experience has its place for us and its importance. Khalil Gibran writes in The Prophet, he says, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the stone of a fruit must break in order that its heart may stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. And it's a, it's a really, I find, an interesting and a beautiful image and a metaphor, that sense of the, the living capacity within the stone of a fruit, of the seed, that's protected by that hard defensive structure. 
And the breaking of that, or the dissolving, it doesn't have to break as such. There's the dissolving that happens naturally as we just come again into our experience, as we come again back, as we notice where we bounce off and move away, and just come back. And the, the gentle, resolute courage that's called forth from us to just more and more fully and again and again inhabit our experience. And we start to see, in fact, that there's something really important here that we've misunderstood about pain. There's something really important here. Our initial response is to, is to withdraw, but that's not the point. That's not actually its function. When I was first uh, traveling in Asia, I spent a little time in Calcutta and I have uh, a grandmother who's Bengali, so it was a, a rather blessed time for me to, to meet this woman who I'd never met in my life. And I was in my mid-twenties, and she was in her seventies, and she's turning 100 next... Well, actually, she's turning 100 this year, since we've gotten to 2017 now. Um, but while I was there, I also spent some time in the um, one of the, um, we say, places that the Order of Mother Teresa had set up in Calcutta to take care of... Um, take care of people who are sick and ill. And actually, I've just realized I got confused as I'm telling the story. This wasn't one of Mother Teresa's places. That's a different story. But <laughs> this story involved actually a, a street clinic that was actually set up by Westerners um, and uh, known as Calcutta Rescue, um, Dr. Jack's clinic, as it was used to be known. And I, I volunteered there just be helping in what was a, a, a voluntary process of people giving medical care to street people who were living, many of whom were ill and sick in all sorts of ways and had no access to medicine. And among the different things that we did was, um, or that I was observing, I was just you know, handing out pills and bandages, I wasn't doing anything you know, formally medical, um, was, was actually treating people who were afflicted with leprosy. And this is this kind of horrible thing that we, at least I have this association with leprosy. Horrible disease makes bits of your body drop off. Ugh. You know, it's, it's quite, you know, I have quite a visceral, had quite a visceral response to the idea of that. But I understood from one of the, the medical staff there something that just completely shocked me and um, which I want to share with you, which is that leprosy doesn't actually cause parts of your body to fall off. Leprosy destroys the nerve tissue so you can't feel pain. And people who are, essentially, it happens in the context of poverty and lack of education. People don't know what's going on. They cut themselves or they burn themselves. They do not feel pain. It gets infected. They do not feel pain. It rots and falls off. They don't know it's happening. For a leper, the thing that would most transform their life is to be able to feel pain. And in our unwillingness to feel what our system is telling us, we make ourselves potentially into emotional or psychic or sometimes physical. We afflict ourselves with the same condition and the bits that drop off become lost to our the fullness and the wholeness of our life and our experience. Not that physical pieces are removed, but the experience is similar. We no longer have the wholeness of the functioning being, the living creature, the organism and its full intelligence. And so what one can conclude from this, it's very clear and it's very precise once we recognize it. What pain is doing and saying is simple. It's saying, pay attention here. That's what it does. It does it really, really well. And of course we go, no, I do not want to pay attention here until we understand the function. We need to pay attention to see, is there something being hurt or harmed? Is there danger? And if so, we respond to it. But we first have to go there and check it out. We need to open into that experience. Of course, within that, there are times for us when clearly moving towards that which is difficult is more than our system can handle. And we need to find ways to moderate 
that process. We need to find ways in which we can be present so we don't leave or disappear or disconnect, but nor that we put ourselves in a sense under pressure from the degree of intensity that we're having to handle. And again, many of us can have experience where our sensitivity in certain realms has been not cared for or um, in such a way as that it becomes a more challenging process to find ways to be with the sensitivity around what is not easy for us to feel, to handle. And so we can explore, as we've talked about, that sense of opening and widening the attention around the body. Not that we have to go directly to or be too close to that which is uncomfortable or difficult. And sometimes it's a bit like just finding out how close is okay. It's not that we need to move into or get on top of what's happening, but we need to be facing it. So if we need to give it space, fine, back off, but back off without turning away. And you can sense perhaps or hear the difference. When we react out of aversion, we pull away, we turn away, we don't want to see what's happening even. But when we step back out of a wisdom or a compassion that says, actually, the intensity is more than I can handle right now, what that means is the amount of energy that's happening doesn't have enough space. That's what creates intensity or pressure, energy in a confined space. So I need to find some way where that amount of energy has enough space and I'm still connected, I'm still grounded. So we can be in the body and with the body, but not just the physicality, but the space around the body too. Or those parts of the body where that intensity isn't happening. And I was um, speaking and exploring this with someone and it's, it's, it's something that it's really useful just to notice that sometimes the breath, where the breath moves is where a lot of intensity happens for us. And then we need to find something else or somewhere else that works for us. And see, okay, can I be here? Can I stay connected? And close, but not too close. And what is what that actually looks like for each of us will be different at different times. But in doing that, we start to find ways to stay connected. And there's a practice I'd like to show you, which is a really interesting way to find balance sometimes, if you, you may find this useful. Because when things are really intense, often we need to find something that's more, that allows us to connect with it, to ground ourselves in. And even sometimes just the hands or the feet or the contact points, which are often really helpful, a sense of pressure or firmness where the weight of the body presses on the ground, the feet are on the ground when we're standing or the hands are touching. Sometimes those contact points give us a clear enough reference to ground in the body and actually also have some space to hold what might be more challenging or more charged for us. But sometimes we need a little more than that. And so... I was just reflecting on this this practice that uh, a teacher who, who was the teacher of one of my teachers in Thailand used. His name was Ajahn Damodaro. And he didn't get people to watch their breath at all. He got them to put their hand out like this. And you can do it with either hand. You can put the hand like that or like that. And to move it like this. And pay attention, as one did it, to the sensations in the middle of the palm. And it's very interesting practice. Apparently the reason he taught them this was because then he could tell if they weren't doing it. <laughs> and say, hey! But of course, it helps oneself to be able to tell. And interestingly, it also provides something, a little bit like walking, that provides a really substantial counterbalance or a, a sort of a, a clear enough place to go to ground if just the stillness of the body is too subtle and there's nothing there for us. So it's something if you wish you might like to try out. Be aware of where your neighbors are <laughs> and be really mindful. It's something done quite slowly. It's not waving one's arm around as such. And it's just something interesting to know about. Over time we start to discover we have the capacity to open to our experience. We have the resource, this human capacity as an adult with our 
with our maturing faculties has so much more capacity than we perhaps have believed. And the real danger we face in life is not the encounter with the difficult, the painful, the scary, or the uncomfortable. The real danger is to be exiled from, from home, from the ground of being present, from being able to inhabit the immediacy and the living vitality of existence that's happening right here. Trusting more and more that we can receive, we can open, we can inhabit this experience. We settle. The heart, the mind, the body begin to settle, begin to naturally gather because we're not so threatened by those things that are challenging to us. They can't take us away from the fundamental well-being that we know and that we need that arises through a wholehearted presence in our experience with its delights and its difficulties, with its sweetnesses and its challenging places. And again, as someone was speaking about in one of the groups, opening into a place of real difficulty and pain, taking them into then a place of real sweetness and warmth and connection and care. And it's so often like that for us. They come together. We can't have just one and not the other because they both arise from this remarkable human sensitivity that we're living through and in. And as we start to trust that, the nature of the sensitivity and the, the responsiveness that we're inhabiting starts to show itself as something open. That it only narrows and tightens because of the unconscious reactive patterns. It's natural, it's organic, its fundamental condition is open, is wide open, is vast. And things pass through it. They're known, they're felt. But it's not defined by them, nor is it obstructed by them, nor is it apart from them either. There's just the movement of life passing through this organic, dynamic fluidity that has a natural okayness and tenderness to it. And we share this with each other, with all beings. This openness, this vastness. It's in this that our heart comes to rest. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes together. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in our capacity to feel the sensitive human experience. May we find courage and kindness with which to meet that that is not easy to bear.
And may we know, may we come to abide in the vast openness of life for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.